0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 22nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good to see you guys this morning. Um, One of the things I have always enjoyed uh, is watching my kids pretend to be their own made-up superheroes running around with capes or costumes or whatever and watching them do that with their friends around the house. It's one of those things that just brings joy to my heart. And this week when I was watching them play, I remembered a time in my own life, it made me chuckle when I was around three and I, for Christmas, got my most favorite, most prized Superman set of pajamas, complete with cape, which, again, this is the 70s, This isn't like Velcro on the back of your shoulder kind of thing. This is tie a knot around your neck. Nobody cared about choking hazards kind of thing. I wore that thing for six straight months, slept in it. You know, you chew on it so you can't untie the knot. It was just there. And there was a point in my life probably about six months after I got that, which is why I probably wore it for six months to the end, that I decided that like Superman, it was time for me to step out and fly. And so as I plotted my, my launch, out of my bedroom window, providentially, my mom walked in and uh, she proceeded to help me understand something I didn't understand at three years old in my life about the theory of gravity. Um, that no matter how much I believed that I could fly, every single time I jumped out of that window, gravity was going to win the battle. And as I was laughing about that this week when I was watching my kids play, It reminded me of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at God's purpose for the church and the culture of the church. And I thought, just like gravity, that though it's unseen, it has a very powerful, determinative effect on our life. Just like gravity, so is the culture of the life of a church. You you can't see culture. But yet it has a determinative impact on the health of the church. You know, an unhealthy church culture will always undermine the clearest of professions of faith and the clearest of strategies laid out. He doesn't get quoted in churches very often, but some of you are familiar with a man named Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker famously said, talking to businessmen and women, that culture in your business is will eat strategy for breakfast every single day. He wasn't putting down strategies. What Drucker was trying to help people understand is that the overwhelming influence culture has on people is something you cannot ignore. And if the culture of a church is at odds with its doctrinal statements or its strategies, the unspoken messages of the culture will always be louder than whatever it is you say let me give you a couple of examples. You can have the clearest statement on your website and and talk about it on a Sunday morning like this and believe with all of your heart that because of the grace of God through the work of Christ, he has made all of us as his children ministers of the gospel. Theologians call that the priesthood of believers. But if in the culture of a church, the only thing that is really valued is whatever the so-called professionals do, then your culture is eating your confession for breakfast because it will absolutely shape the life of God's people together. Another example, you can say with the clearest of statements and the greatest biblical of defenses that the sacrifice of Jesus in your place for your sin is greater than any sin you could ever imagine. Yet if the culture of a church does not allow for openness and confession, when someone who admits a struggle with sin, they will most likely not experience mercy from one another. And in that moment, what that culture is saying is that a grace-filled confession is not as present as a graceless culture. And a graceless culture will always overpower a grace-filled confession. You can talk about it all you want. You can say this is what we should have, what we should be, but what's experienced will always eat that profession for breakfast. Regardless of whatever strategies are set, it's ultimately the culture of the life together that shapes how we live amongst each other. It actually shapes how those who who are outside of the church perceive the church. And it shapes how they even perceive God and his gospel. This is what we've been talking about and what we've been rediscovering over the last two weeks in our look at the church. We've been talking about this growing age of outsourcing where increasing professing believers, followers of Christ, are saying with their lives that the church seems inefficient to them. Not inefficient in the business sense, but inefficient in the sense that they can get on their phones and listen to their favorite preachers. They can get on their phones, listen to their favorite music. They have other entities outside of the church where they can gather with people that are a lot more like them and go do things that they like to do. They can find activities or needs to go and meet outside the work of the church. that the church is just too inefficient. And so they've been outsourcing the work of the church to these other things. And what we've been looking at over the last two weeks through God's word is that far from being inefficient, God has intended for all of eternity to show off his manifold wisdom. In particular, his manifold wisdom in the gospel to a watching world through the church. And he does it through the church in ways that you and I might not immediately consider. It's not the ingenuity of our strategies. It's the gospel-driven A gospel-centered, grace-driven nature of our culture. Because our culture together as a church preaches something. It says something. This is what you and I love to see every time we read the book of Acts. When we read about the early church that spent time together in one another's lives, that gathered in homes, gathered in the temple courts to be encouraged by God's word, to encourage one another in God's word, that would eat together, that would meet one another's needs with joy. Luke records over and over and over again in the life of that church, God added to their numbers daily because a watching world saw something and experienced something in their culture. It was an evangelistic impact. And this week I was reading an article written by a church planter in India, in Mumbai, India, and he was talking about this. And and he said this, he said, when outsiders walk into a community like this where people love one another with joy and sacrifice, what they experience is initially more powerful than what they hear. And he said, there's a little bit of irony here. God sees our hearts first and our behaviors later. People see our behavior first and from that begin to draw conclusions about our hearts. So in a time like ours of increasing numbers of professing Christians finding the church inefficient and secondary and outsourcing it to their phones and their social groups and whatever it is, we're reminded that our, our hearts need some recalibration. Our hearts, as Paul will help us to see, need some renewal in the way we understand the purpose and the value and the joy of the gospel in the church. And we need to be made aware of this too. There is something in this as we're learning the culture of the church that God intends to be a display of the gospel to a watching world, there's a culture that we have to unlearn as well. There's a culture that we're picking up from the world in which we live that would seek to encroach upon the joy of the gospel and shape the way that our lives are lived out. So as we're learning this gospel culture as a people, we have to be aware there's a culture that we have to unlearn too. And so what we've been looking at to catch everybody up is this intention that God has said that has been his for all of eternity. And that's simply this. He intends for the love we have for one another the culture that's created amongst us by the gospel to mark us in such a way that it puts on display to a watching world the wisdom of the gospel. Even more specifically, that the world around us might know something of God's love for them by the way they experience and see our love for one another. Instead of leaving that kind of nebulous just talking about this love that's supposed to mark us, last week we said, let's put some contours on it. You understand gravity when you see its effects. You can't see gravity itself, you can see its effects. Rather than talking about this love that's supposed to mark us, let's find some contours and some edges to it. What's it actually look like? And so we went to Romans chapter 12. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go there now. We're gonna stay there this week, but I'll remind you what we saw last week, and then we'll flow right into the rest of what Paul has to say. Last week in looking at Romans chapter 12, talking about this love that is meant to be a display of the gospel, this love amongst God's people, it's meant to be our reputation. We said there's supposed to be a genuineness about it. It's supposed to be lacking in a hypocrisy. There's a genuineness to our love for each other, this unwillingness that we have in our own lives and for one another to play Christianity like a role, to wear it like a mask. In this gospel culture, it has an honesty, a genuineness about it. And then we said out of that honesty, out of that genuineness, it kind of marks everything. There's a riskiness to it. Because we're not willing to watch sin destroy one another's hearts. We're not willing to watch sin rob one another of joy. We're not willing to watch sin take one another down destructive paths. So regardless of what it may cost us in our relationship, for the sake of the gospel and for one another's joy and the glory of God, we're willing to risk it. We're willing to risk whatever the status quo is. This is supposed to mark God's people in this gospel culture, this genuineness and this riskiness, but not just that. There's a particular affection that's supposed to mark God's people. There's an emotion that actually exists there. Paul said it's a brotherly affection. It's the kind of affection and love that comes supernaturally. It comes between people that don't choose each other. Just like you don't choose your siblings and you didn't choose your family, but by virtue of being a family, there is a particular affection that you have in your heart for one another. This happens in the church, which means there's supposed to be an absence of a particular snobbiness and cliquishness amongst God's people because there's a mutual familial affection for each other. The more we enjoy the gospel, the more we're supposed to feel and see that for each other. And then last week we saw the last little mark for the week that There's a particular competitiveness about this gospel culture. Paul said, you and I are are supposed to be trying to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. There's a a holy competitiveness in the culture and not trying to be honored and be recognized, but looking for ways and evidences of God's grace in each other's lives and going out of our way to try to point those things out, affirm those things, encourage those things. We're, We're to be a people who are trying to get to the front of the line of honoring each other. That's meant to be the reputation of the church. The culture of a gospel-centered, grace-driven church is meant to be one that has a genuineness to it, an affection to it, a riskiness to it. It's kind of holy competitiveness to outdo one another in showing honor. And so this morning, I just want to keep looking at more of the, the marks of this culture that Paul has here in Romans chapter 12. We won't, again, get through all of them, but I think this morning we'll get through a sufficient number, to be able to better understand the fullness of this culture? What what does it look like to have this gospel declaring joy-stirring love that's meant to be our reputation? Well, if we pick it up in verse 11 where we left off last week, Paul says that this particular culture born out of the gospel is one that never gets bored with Jesus. If you're here this morning, like we said last week, and you're exploring Christianity, trying to understand the the nature of the church and the nature of the gospel, we said last week that as we go through these different marks of a gospel culture, this for you is what you should be looking for. And the Bible gives you every right and every invitation to not just understand the statements that we make about our faith, but to look at the way we live, to look for the genuineness and the affection, the willingness to risk for love and, and look for a people if you're here just exploring the, the value, the impact, the nature of Christianity, you're just here trying to understand, I want you to know you should look for a people that don't get bored with Jesus. That don't get bored with the cause of the gospel in the church. This is what Paul is saying in verse 11 when he says, do not be slothful in zeal, rather be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Faithful translations you might have in front of you will say, never flag in zeal. Never be lacking in zeal. Be not lazy in earnestness. Here's the thing, friends. There are few things in this world as diluting to the cause of putting on display the manifold wisdom of God to a watching world than a church that is bored with Jesus. There are few things as diluting to that reflection of God's manifold wisdom to a watching world than the culture of a church where people are apathetic about the gospel. It's like that super early morning when you can barely wake up and someone hands you a watered down curry cup of coffee. That's what an apathetic church culture is to the display of the gospel. And as much as verse 11 is an encouragement, It's what the theologians will call an exhortation. It's kind of got a rebuke and an encouragement in it. This is what Paul is reminding the church. Jesus isn't a hobby. Christianity isn't a role. It isn't something you put on here and take off there. Apathetic Christians are antithetical to the joy of the gospel. So Paul says, don't be aloof. Don't be disinterested. Don't be lazy. Be fervent in spirit. Quite literally, he says, boil in your spirit. Some of your translations will say, be passionate in your spirit. Be aglow in your spirit. And here's the thing. By saying this the way he does, where he does in Romans chapter 12, in what he's trying to teach the church, Paul is saying this because he knows this is going to be a tendency of people who live in a fallen world. Paul is saying that he can assume that if you see this reality creeping into your heart, if you can see this apathy and boredom with Jesus and the gospel encroaching into your heart, then there's something you can do about it. That's why he says it the way he does. That's why the command is don't be apathetic, be fervent, because he realizes that if you see it happening, there's something you can do about it. See, Paul knows that if you are a member of the body of Christ... If you have tasted of the grace of God, there's something true about you, and that's this. The very spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and at work in your heart, working and willing to the glory of God in you, working to continually conform you to the image and likeness of Christ. And because of God's grace to you through his son, you no longer need someone else to go to God through for you. You can go directly to him. Paul knows that if you can see this apathy encroaching in your heart towards Jesus and the gospel, if you can see this sense of inefficiency growing in you when you think about the church, Paul can say, don't be apathetic, be fervent, because he knows that you can go directly to God and you can plead with him to restore this passion, to restore this zeal, to restore this fervor to your spirit by his word. Through Spirit's work through His Word, you can actually have God speak this zeal and passion into your heart. Paul knows that. That's why he says, don't be apathetic about Jesus. Rather, boil in your spirit. Be passionate about the gospel. Bored Christians. Apathetic church culture. It dilutes The gospel with witness and reflection to a watching world, and not just that—it does something to itself. Bored Christians and an apathetic church culture—they short-circuit the work of God's grace in the church to one another. Here's what I mean. How does Paul end verse 11? He says, "Don't be lazy. Don't be apathetic. Don't be bored. Be fervent in your spirit." Serve the Lord. Don't be bored with Jesus. Be zealous. Serve the Lord. Grammatically it says in serving the Lord, be zealous, not lazy. Paul's saying your zeal, your passion, that glow in your spirit is expressed in a life that is lived to serve the Lord. Just like he told the church in Corinth, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's encompassing of all of life. But like the idea of love, that can seem so grand that it has no edges to it. We can talk about Jesus not coming to be served, but rather to serve, and then as his disciples, we ought to be people who live not to be served or be honored, but to serve and to honor. We can talk about all those things, but they can, they can feel so large, they don't have any edges to them. I mean, how in joy and, and in passion and, and in zeal do I serve the Lord? Well, Zeal like this and passion like this, it's, it's going to be expressed in a variety of outlets. But for the sake of context and at least giving one example, let's stay in Romans chapter 12 and go up to verse 3. Let me show you what this looks like in a sense, this serving of the Lord. Verse 3, Paul says this, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. So now he's talking about your physical body, right? You have one body and your body is made up of many parts. Okay. And the members do not all have the same function. Does anybody have an argument about that? You have one body. Does your body have a lot of different parts? Do any of you sneeze out of your hands? No, each has their own function makes sense no argument there keep reading so we talking to the church though many look around there's more than one of you we're one body in christ this is one of paul's most favorite metaphors in talking about the church we are a body and then he says something curious and i want to mention it here and it'll make even more sense going forward we're one body in christ and individually members of one another That's a significant little statement that gets glossed over when people are going through these verses in Romans chapter 12. What it means, and it's going to get more clear in just a minute, is that for me, Robert, to be all that God has intended for me to be, as we'll see in a few minutes, to grow up into the spiritually mature person he has called me to be, it requires that you, with zeal and joy in the gospel, be who God has called you to be, and vice versa. It's very important. If that doesn't happen, we begin to short-circuit the work of God's grace in the church. So Paul says in verse 6, he's going to explain it. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's another place where he talks about this same idea of a body and each member being gifted differently. There he says more explicitly, to each is given a gift. Paul says the same thing here when he just assumes, he just says having gifts. What he's saying is that by the grace of God, each and every single follower of Jesus, member of one body in Christ is given particular gifts by God. Now when you start talking about spiritual gifts, that can get a little weird. So we're not gonna get weird this morning. I'm gonna read to you my favorite definition. All right, this is my favorite definition. It's clear as mud. Here it is. A spiritual gift is an ability, and you can use the word there to mean working or capability, that comes to you freely, it's a gift, for the purpose of ministering to needs so as to build up Christian community in size and depth. That's my favorite definition. Spiritual gift is an ability that comes to you freely for the purpose of ministering to needs so as to build up Christian community in size and depth. And Paul says to each, to each member, not to some, but to each member, is God has given gifts. Now, they differ, which means they're not all the same. The person next to you is not gifted the same way as you are. So Paul's gonna give us a little idea of the way that God does this. Now, when we read the next few verses, I want you to understand, this is not an exhaustive list of the way that God gifts people in particular ways for the building up of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a longer list. It's not exhaustive either. The lists in the Bible are not exhaustive. They're representative of ways that God works particularly and uniquely by gifting people in particular ways. So let's read the next couple of verses. I'm going to read them out of the NIV. I love the ESV. But right here in these verses, it's accurate, it's true, but it uses words we tend to argue about. The NIV and even the New Living Translation, they actually make it a little easier. So I'm going to read these next couple of verses out of the NIV. Here it is If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according to your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Each is giving gifts. We're not giving the same gifts in the same way. So let me say this before anyone kind of raises their hand or looks at me kind of funny. I know the question. How do you figure out how you're gifted? Let me tell you this. There is no spiritual gifts aptitude test that you can take, that could accurately tell you the unique ways that God has gifted you. Those tests exist. I've taken some of them. Some of you may have taken them, but they aren't really helpful. I've taken a lot of them. Companies send them to us to try all the time. And on none of them have I ever found someone coming to the conclusion through the test that they have the spiritual gift of setting up chairs. Never. Never doesn't exist i mean so what is it that causes some people in this church to get here at six o'clock in the morning six thirty in the morning seven o'clock in the morning seven fifteen in the morning go into a closet on the second floor unload a ton of stuff that isn't even cased up very well and easy that can teeter over if they're not careful bring it all down by one elevator throughout the entire building set it up across the entire first floor and part of the second floor Praying for the numbers of people that are going to come through it and come in here and set up all these chairs and all these curtains and all these instruments and this screen, knowing with joy that in just a little while, 600 some people are going to come and hear the gospel preached and proclaimed and their kids encouraged by Jesus. No, there's no test that says you've got the gift of setting up chairs, you're really good at rolling up speaker wires. It's just a gift of service. As we're all called to serve, there are some people that are uniquely gifted by God who see particular needs and with a great joy, they get here and they get things done. And their zeal is contagious. It's contagious. But there's no spot on the test that's going to say this is what you should do. And no matter how many tests you take like this, I rarely come across anyone that ever really considers, before they take the test, that they might have the spiritual gift of giving. It gets real quiet right there, doesn't it? It's about like talking about the spiritual gift of singleness. No matter how many times you take these tests, you know you try to self-select the things you want to be known for. Nobody wants those two things. I was telling the other service, I took one of these tests four years ago with a group of pastors at a luncheon. A company was wanting us to take it, to test it, maybe think about using it in our church. There were 30 of us in the room, all senior pastors of different churches. And amongst those 30, there were five that I know, excuse me, four that I knew, that all tested for the spiritual gift of singleness. Amongst those four, 17 children. (laughs) All still married, all not operating in their spiritual gift. you can't take these tests very few people ever consider that they may actually have what Paul says here in Romans chapter 12 as a spiritual gift of giving but here's the thing just as we're all called to serve and we're all called to show mercy we're all called to encourage we're all as followers of Jesus called to give and here's what I want to say about this it's just a little sidebar, a little nugget for you just a second This is an area of your spiritual life that we have failed you in over the years in in the sense of equipping you and encouraging you. I can't tell you how many times in 11 years people have come up to me in various ways. And one person came up to me with a Bible, they opened it up, had three checks in it, four checks in it. So do you guys actually believe in giving to this church? And I was like, well, yeah, let me kind of help you out. Because here's the thing. When we were younger, 11 years ago, I think a mark of the, the ignorance of immaturity is that that kind of story we would have worn as like a badge of honor because everybody knows the rest of the world thinks the church is just after their money. So if you came in here and you didn't feel any pressure about us being after your money, then we wore that like a badge of honor. So we didn't talk about it a whole lot unless it came up in the text. We don't pass anything around at a certain point in the service. We keep boxes in the back, but we rarely ever mention them. In fact, as an example of our culture actually betraying our confession, years ago, ready to remember this, years ago, before we had people actually standing up to distribute the elements of communion, when we were a little bit smaller, we had tables set up in the back of the room. And on those tables were the elements, you'd go get a piece of bread, you'd dip it in the cup, and right next to it, we had much smaller wooden offering boxes. But do you know what would happen? If we weren't paying attention when we set up the room, we would put the offering box on the left and the elements on the right of the table. How do you work your way down a table? Some of you are figuring it out. Week after week after week, if you we weren't careful, we would tell everyone, by the way, we did what we did, that you pay for communion. People wouldn't go and take communion because they were afraid because they weren't putting anything in a box. And if they did put it in the box, they had to put it in the box before they get communion. We just weren't super mindful about these things. But here's the thing, 11 years later, you have enough conversations with people Families with husbands, with wives, with people who maybe at one point in their life, man, they were poster children for what Paul's been talking about in Romans chapter 12. Zealous and passionate for Jesus. Anything but bored in the way that God used them in their life and used them in the church. But over time, the encroaching, conforming pattern of the world, self-focused, self-promoting, fairly materialistic culture we live in it encroaches and you end up having conversations with men and women and families who are being destroyed by these things and not talking about it and not equipping people well not discipling people well and what Jesus talks so much about about their treasures and their heart it's not a badge of honor it's a mark of immaturity it's a mark of failure and so I want you to understand that that we recognize this and and we want to grow in this as pastors and as leaders. And we're going to try to grow in this even as a church because people, there are particular people, we're all called to give in this way, but there are particular people, Paul says here in Romans chapter 12, that God has given a particular grace to to be generous in their giving. And we have not helped equip you in that. What we've done, again, by our culture, we've undermined our statements where we've said that all of God's word is powerful, all of God's word is true, all of God's word is important, but this gift is less than others'. Because we've sought to try to equip and encourage other gifts. Some of you are gifted this way. We haven't encouraged it. We haven't helped you grow in it. And that's to your own demise and to the demise of the church, as we'll see. So we're sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. We're learning to grow in these things. Um, yeah, I can't take more time on that. How do you discover these gifts? Well, you don't take a test for them. They're in a Scantron you can fill out for it. You discover them by throwing yourself into the life of the church. That's the only way you can ever really discover these gifts. When you throw yourself into the life of the church, you put yourself in immediate proximity with people who can see the way that God is using you in their own life and in the lives of other people. And they get to encourage you in those particular and unique ways. I sat down with a guy on Friday, 10 minutes with this guy. I've never felt more encouraged. Every single time I'm with him, this is how I feel. It's just the way he is. It's the way he talks. It's the way he speaks. And I get a chance to encourage him. And, that, and tears come down his eyes being affirmed. And this is the way that God has, has made him and wired him. Just being acknowledged that this is what you do. This is how he's wired you. I don't speak like this. This just comes out of you. It's amazing. Put yourself around God's people in different circumstances and all of a sudden you begin to see the way that God has made you and gifted you in unique ways and the church gets a chance to affirm that and equip that and encourage you in that. At the same time as it helps you see what you shouldn't be doing. You're supposed to laugh at that. I mean there are some people even if it was on the Scantron no matter what it said on their test we would not say you should be a greeter. We love you but your personality that's just not how God's made you. Like, if you ever met those people? They just have that just sad, mean-looking face. Maybe you go up to them on a Sunday because you think something's happened. Their dog's died. They lost their job. And I that man, this has been the best week in the last month. It's like, well, praise God, but you shouldn't be handing out worship guides, man. Like, find something else. It's like, you know, it helps. It helps affirm what God is doing. It helps us understand what you shouldn't be doing, too. But you gotta put yourself into the life of the church. Listen to what Tim Keller had to say. Don't listen to me. I'm stupid and young. Keller said, the only way you're ever really going to come to know the kinds of things that God has wired you to do is if you do a lot of different things. Then you'll know what God is blessing. Don't look first, he said, at your proven abilities, the things you do at your day job or your natural talents. Don't look there first because God may not use you like that. Don't look first at your deepest affinities. Don't look at the things that excite you and interest you the most. If you gravitate too quickly to those areas, you may miss latent gifts that you aren't even aware you have. How do you figure it out? He said, just serve. Plug the gaps in the church and help out. Go through the door of opportunity in the church doing whatever needs to be done, and then as time goes on, you'll be able to check even those gifts, those talents, and those affinities for what God is doing. Whatever it is, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace God gives us Let us use them. We have to use them. This is a unique way that God has put the church together for us with zeal and passion to serve him. Paul reminds the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12 that we've been given these particular gifts so that we can help each other. When when apathetic and bored Christians outsource the life of the church, they short circuit the grace of God in the church. That's meant to be a means of encouragement. It's meant to be a means of help. Very practically, Paul says it's meant to be God's means of building up the body so that the culture of the church would display the wisdom of God the way that God intends it to. Which means, very practically, there are zero dispensable members of the church. You have been gifted in a unique way by the grace of God for the building up of the body. When you choose to dip out for whatever reason it is, I promise you, there are better preachers you can listen to than me on your phone, I promise you. When you choose to just outsource the life of the church for whatever reason you've got, it's not just you that eventually suffers for that, it's the church. Because God has intended for all of eternity for the gifts that he has given each member of the church to be a particular means of his grace for the building up of his body. Having gifts that differ. Paul says, let's use them with zeal for the glory of God and the good of the church. In fact, he'll get really specific in Ephesians. When he's writing to the church in Ephesus, he'll say very clearly that the gifts that God has given to the church, he's given to the ends of the spiritual maturity of the church, And by saying it that way, he's reminding us that we're all immature in various ways. And it's the body, it's the members of the body and the unique gifts that God has given to the members of the body that God has purposed as means to help us grow up so that we'll no longer be infants. And God has hardwired the church for all of eternity to be his spiritual adulting program without the gifts of the body in the church together, we stand, we stand the risk of remaining immature. Not being the people of God that love each other in a particular way that Paul has been unpacking in Romans 12, that puts on display to a watching world the particular grace of God through the gospel. This is significant to the Lord. Friends, God has willed for the gifts that he has given you by his grace and worked in you by his spirit to be used for the building up of his body to the end that the world would know something of his grace and his love for them through our love for each other. This is a powerful demonstration to a watching world. A genuine, affectionate, honest, encouraging, passionate people in the midst of a self-focused, self-protecting, self-promoted world. It is a unique counter-cultural demonstration of the gospel. And this is God's, has been for all of eternity, God's plan for putting on display the manifold wisdom that he has in the gospel. When this world sees this kind of people, who freely, Paul will go on to say, whatever costs to themselves, do whatever it takes to meet one another's needs. Be it material, be it physical, be it emotional. Go out of their way to find opportunities for those who are on the outside of the grace of God to be brought in by opening up their homes, opening up their lives to a watching world. When they come face to face and run headlong into a people like that, Paul says there's something particular by the grace of God that's put on display. That kind of culture preaches and it only happens, it only happens where there is the genuineness present that Paul was talking about. You don't find a people going out of their way to meet one another's needs, be it physical, be it material, be it emotional. You don't find it happening where the genuineness Paul was talking about isn't present. Do you know why? Because whatever that need might be, maybe it's emotional. Maybe your heart has been caught up in some sin that you've held secret. If that genuineness isn't present and you keep wearing that mask and playing this thing like a role, no one's going to know. If that situation that you found yourself in, even even materially or physically, if it's something that you find this level of shame in and you've got to put this mask on so no one will know, let's say, think something of you, When Christianity remains non-genuine, you'll never find a culture like this where people go out of their way to meet one another's needs. You know why? Because we never actually know. We never know. Sometimes that happens because the culture that people have experienced in the church is not a grace-driven, grace-filled culture. A graceless culture will often continue to compel people to keep those kinds of things hidden. Without the genuineness and the honesty of the gospel in a culture like this, you won't find a people going out of their way to meet one another's needs. And it's not just the genuineness, the zeal has to exist too. Because when the zeal exists that Paul was talking about, when there's a people who are passionately enjoying the gospel more and more each and every single day, looking for ways to go out of their way to, to honor one another, looking for God's grace in one another's lives, you know what's happening? We're looking for those places too where one another are trying to hide. When you put the zeal together and the humility together with the genuineness, you find a people who are in surprising and manifold ways going out of their way to meet one another's needs. You actually find a people, Paul talks about in verse 15, who rejoice with one another and weep with one another. That's a need that has to be met too. Sometimes all people need and all you can actually offer is sitting there and crying with them. But to be honest with you, that's very, it's often easier to do that than it is to rejoice with someone. Because sometimes the, the joy that someone has in their life and the way that God is working is a joy you wish God was working in your life. And so to celebrate with them what God is doing in their life requires a selflessness on your part and a genuineness on your part and a joy in the gospel on your part because practically you wish what was happening in their life was happening in yours. So without the genuineness, without the zeal, you don't find the people who are going out of their way to meet one another's needs because it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you emotion. It might cost you money. It might cost you stuff. But where this culture is being cultivated by the gospel, the genuineness is growing there the zeal is growing and the joy is growing and the affection is growing there you find a people like this who even Paul says go out of their way to pursue hospitality who go out of their way looking for opportunities to bless those who don't yet know the grace of God in Christ looking for ways to bring them into their life and into their world that they might know something of God's love for them They go out of their way looking for opportunities to bless them, not, verse 14, persecuting them, cursing them, not making them other and separating them, but finding ways to open up their lives and open up their homes and open up who they are and the community of God's people in ways that they might come and find the blessing of grace. It's not easy. I'll be just dead honest with you. I get the temptation to outsource it all. I get it. I get it. It's so much easier. It's so much more control over my life and my things and my energy and my emotion and my stuff. But it dilutes the calls of the gospel. It short-circuits the work of God's grace amongst his people. So Paul, in love, in Romans chapter 12, he paints a picture for us of a people that are all in together for the glory of God and the good of one another. They're all in together on the gospel for a culture of genuineness and honesty and affection and encouragement and passion and service and generosity and welcome. They're all in together on pursuing these realities in the gospel. Theologian Michael Green said, this is what the early church was famous for. He said that early Christians were absolutely famous and unusual and remarkable and well known for being characterized by these very things integrity, generosity, hospitality, sympathy, handling adversity, and seeking equity. Friends, what are we going to be known for? What is our reputation going to be? How do we get to Romans 12? How does that become? If if the Lord so wills and we're here in 11 years and we're here in 20 more years, how does it get to be this is our reputation? Well, let Paul close it down for us and remind us. Chapter 12, verse 1. Here's how it happens. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. We have to recognize there is a conforming power outside of the gospel, an encroaching power that would seek to rob us of our joy and delight in the gospel. Paul says we're not to be conformed by this world. There is a a conforming power that we have to unlearn and be aware of, but rather, here's how it happens. We're transformed by the renewal of our mind, by the recalibrating of our mind, that by testing we would discern what the will of God is, what's good, acceptable, and perfect. Friends, the only way this all-in culture of Romans 12 becomes a reality here, the only way this becomes Redemption Hill's reputation in our city, is by having our minds continuously Renewed for going to live without hypocrisy together to risk for the cause of the gospel to seek honor above being honored to serve the lord with passion to sacrifice for the well-being of others to open up our lives for those exploring that they might see something in jesus there has to be an ongoing renewal and recalibration and paul says that happens by the mercies of god The only way we can arrest the ongoing encroachment of the conforming patterns of this world in our hearts and in our minds is by continuing day in and day out to encourage one another to see and enjoy Jesus in deeper and more meaningful ways. That's the only way it happens. Only seeing and enjoying Jesus and the gospel can stop the encroachment of a self-centered, self-promoting, self-serving culture. Friends, do you want to be transformed? Do you want Redemption Hill to be this gospel-centered, all-in kind of people? By the grace of God, may this, may this be our reputation through his work. Together, let's set our minds on the glorious realities of the gospel that make us one in him. The sacrificial life and death and victorious resurrection of Jesus in our place for our sin. The adopting grace of God, bringing us into his family, making us one body, brothers and sisters together the continual work of his Holy Spirit present in our hearts and in our lives, working with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to conform us into the image and likeness of his Son, the promised hope that he is going to return one day and make right in this world all that sin has broken, that we would be with him for all of eternity. Friends, the more and more and more together we set our hearts and mind on the mercies of God, seeking to see and enjoy this good news daily. God in his miraculous providence and work works amongst us a kind of culture, a particular love that reflects to a watching world something of his grace. May he do that for his glory and our joy in this place. Let me pray for us, and then together we're going to respond. And we're going to respond by celebrating the broken body and shed blood of Christ the gospel that empowers and drives and strengthens our transformation and does the cultivating work of this gospel-displaying culture in our lives together. Let me pray, and then we'll continue to respond. Father, we thank you this morning that you have not simply just saved us, but by your Holy Spirit at work in our lives and through your word, you create in our hearts a deeper and deeper delight and joy in who you are that is reflected through our lives and, and seeking to display something of that grace to one another. Lord, we want to be, we want to be together, this all in Romans 12 culture of a church. The people that you have created and purposed for all time, before all of eternity, to be a demonstration of your goodness to a watching world. Lord, for that to happen, we need you to do a miracle in our hearts and do a miracle amongst us. Do the work today and tomorrow and the next day of continuing to recalibrate and transform our minds and our hearts, to push back against the encroaching selfishness of our world that we, that we might love one another in such a way that we not just experience through each other something of your grace, but we put on display to our hurting and lonely and isolated culture something of your love for them. Open up our minds and our hearts to the, to the grandeur of your plan for the church. And we ask that you would do this for Jesus' name and his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.